0: Well, it's good to be back, isn't it? Good to be together in 2024. Who's excited for this coming year? Who's excited to be in a new year? I am, and we're going to get right into his word. I have an exciting word for you today. I believe the Lord put this word in my heart, and uh, I titled last week, More in 24. Everybody say, More in 24. You know, the Lord doesn't have to speak in rhymes. I was just thinking, I was laughing to myself, but you know that the Lord does do things to get our attention, right? You know, the Lord doesn't speak English, right? God just speaks, and every language hears him, but God does do things like that to get our attention, doesn't he, right? When Moses was walking by, he put a burning bush in his way to catch his attention, so God knows how to get our attention, and so I just feel like I needed to just say more in 24, maybe it's just for me to remember but I felt compelled that God is calling all of us into a deeper relationship with him. Who can um, echo that with me, right? That he's calling us into a deeper relationship. We're all in different places. Every one of us has a different story. We've all come from different backgrounds. We're all different ages, right? All different ethnicities and cultures. But every single one of us, there's a universal thing that applies in this room. And that is that there is always more. There's always more. There's always more of God available to you, and you may already know him. It's time to seek him more. Maybe you don't know him at all, and today's your day, but the more we seek God, the more we call on him, the more we will find him. That's a promise. It says in Jeremiah 33, verse 2, this is what the Lord says, the Lord who made the earth, who formed it and established it, whose name is the Lord. Ask me, and I will tell you remarkable secrets you do not know about things to come. But I also see in this season that uh, there is a, a seeking him now. It's not just that we need to seek God, but there is a now. Everybody say a now. I don't know quite how that works, but you know there are now moments, right? There's a now moment. You know, every single accident that happens, it was, it was the wrong place at the wrong time. But there's also right places at the right time. I don't understand it all, but I know that there are times when things uh, line up. That's not New Age, right? The New Age just steals everything from God. There are moments in the Bible. It happens all throughout the Word. There are specific places that God had specific people, right? Even Moses come floating down the Nile for that moment to be found, right? To be brought into Pharaoh's home. There are seasons and there are times I don't need to understand it all. I just believe it. And I do believe that that is now. I don't believe that we're meant to get all our ducks in a row first. I think when you try to get all your ducks in a row, what happens? Your ducks are never in a row, are they? Who's ever got everything all figured out? I've never got it all figured out. God is looking for us to seek him now. And none of us are guaranteed the next breath. Not one of us. No matter how old or young you are, you are not guaranteed the next breath. We all have areas that we need to surrender over to God And we should call on him while we can. That's what Isaiah 55 says in verse 6. It says, seek the Lord while you can find him. So there is a time for him to be found while you can find him. That means that there might be a time that you can't find him. I don't think God hides from you. I think the scripture is saying there may be a time where you're not breathing any longer. Right? Call on him now while he's near. And I felt like I needed to read this again. Last week, uh, I read from Luke 19. I'm not going to read the whole passage to you, but this is when Jesus is nearing Jerusalem. It's his final week of life before they're about to crucify him. And as he's getting close to Jerusalem, the Bible says that Jesus begins to weep for Israel. The Bible says he begins to weep, and he says, you did not recognize it when God visited you, verse 41. More traditional translations say, you didn't recognize the time of your visitation, right? So, your time of visitation. There is a moment when Jesus is passing through our lives. There are moments where he's trying to get our attention. Who can, who can testify? There are moments that we've missed, and there are moments where we said, Yes, Lord, and something miraculous happened in our lives. That doesn't mean that he doesn't love you in the other moments, but there are moments where the Lord's trying to get our attention, and your heart might start beating really, really fast. We've all been there. You know it's God. You know God's speaking, and we just need to respond. It's as simple as that. So last week, I preached on those things, and I, and I got into Exodus, which we're going to look at again. But then um, I began to meditate on this sermon and just kind of that the Lord's asking us for more, and suddenly the word popped into my spirit wholeheartedly. Everybody say that out loud with me, wholeheartedly. And I was like, that's right. The Bible doesn't just say to seek him. I was like, it's in Jeremiah. I began to look at it. I was like, oh yeah, just a couple of chapters earlier in Jeremiah, in 29, verse 11. Right, It's a very famous scripture. I'm going to read it out of the New King James Version. It says, For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. And then it says in verse 12, Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. Who loves that promise? And verse 13 says, And you will seek me, and find me when you search for me with all your heart. The NLT says, If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. And sometimes people say, You know, Jesus is, you know, I, I thought he was real. He just, every time I pray, he doesn't answer. I don't see him. You know, I think it's just a fairy tale. And I think many times we have this concept of Jesus that is. Uh, historical or even other religions bring Jesus in as prophets and they, they mention the name of Jesus. It's just a name without knowing him, isn't it? He's just a name. He was just a character without knowing him, but it's really in knowing him. It's a wholehearted seeking. Who has found that you were seeking God and then something happened? There's just a gear that shifts in you. You began to seek him in a deeper and greater way than you ever did before and you found him in a deeper and greater way than you even know that he was available for. And so that's what I feel like the Lord is asking in this season. It's a wholehearted seeking. It's not a flippant seeking. The Lord is calling us into a deeper relationship with himself, and that opportunity is here for us now. And this is what it says in Matthew 27. Jesus is actually quoting Deuteronomy 6, and this was one of the very Uh, You know, the commandments are just being written, and this is considered the first and the greatest. It says in Matthew 27, uh, uh, Matthew 22, verse 37, Jesus replied, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. Mark and Luke add to this passage, with all your strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. That's what the Lord is looking for, a complete and total sacrificial type of life towards him. That's what he's looking for. In fact, the Bible says that your life is the sacrifice. It becomes, right, we've joined with Christ on the cross. We've joined him in eternity and On the cross. And so my life has actually become a sacrifice. And the Bible says that God looks at your life. He sees that life that is sacrificed to Him as a sweet and smelling aroma before Him. Just like the sacrifice when it was an animal, He looked at it and He saw that animal. He saw your heart. He sees us, a life that is devoted to Him. And so I want to look deeper into the book of Exodus, chapter 11. Because I believe that uh, this story uh, is its about a people in the Bible, the Israelites, who were his, they're God's people, and but they were separated from the outside world. Everybody say they were separate. This is a story about a people that were separate from the outside world. We know through the Bible, the Bible has many metaphors, there are many pictures and metaphors in the Old and New Testament, and the picture of Egypt in our Bible, is a picture of world. Everybody say world, right? Or worldliness or the world system, right? God uses Egypt. He speaks about Egypt as a metaphor throughout the rest of the Bible, also Babylon, and he uses those kingdoms, which were actual physical kingdoms, but he uses them as a picture and as a metaphor into the rest of the Bible, a metaphor of really abandoning God, Right? When he talks about them going back to Egypt, it's a metaphor that means abandoning God and trying to lean upon the strength of ourselves, the strength of you know, my 401k or my own physical strength or whatever. The metaphor is that I don't need God, I've got things figured out, or I'm going to go somewhere else to get it. So that metaphor of Egypt, we see in this story uh, that there are slaves that are bound in Egypt. And so it's a real people, it's a historical story, but it's also a metaphorical story about slavery to the world system. And so God gave uh, his people, though, uh, the land of Goshen, a safe haven right in Egypt. Jesus said, right, we're in the world, right, we know this, you are in the world, but you're not of the world. And so we need to be in Goshen Right inside of Egypt, even though you're in the world just like everyone else, we need to live inside that safe place that God has created for us, Uh, and, and that's really what I want to get into a little bit deeper. God calls Moses to deliver the people from slavery. And uh, the Israelites do something very specific. It required 100% obedience, what's about to happen in this story. And if they would listen, it would save their lives. So let's just go a little bit deeper. Exodus chapter 11, I'm just going to read some text first. And I'm just speaking fast because I had a whole bunch of things to say. So hopefully everybody's tracking with me. But I want to just get to everything that the Lord's given me here. So Exodus chapter 11, verse 1, says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, I will strike Pharaoh and the land of Egypt with one more blow. Now, I said it last week. You can go and listen to the podcast if you'd like to get into this deeper for this part of of the sermon. But just very quickly, we know that uh, the plagues have been bombarding Egypt. God's been protecting his people. As I just said, they're in Goshen. And God is keeping his people safe, but Egypt's been going through some hell. And he says there's going to be one final thing because Pharaoh's been stubborn. You know, this world doesn't want to let you go, does it? This world and its, its, its desires, right? The Bible says that sin is pleasurable for a season, right? But its end is destruction. Its end is death. But sin is pleasurable, isn't it? The world has a way of getting its grip on us, and sometimes it just doesn't seem like it wants to let go, does it? But that's what's happened, and God has promised that he's going to break its power just as he broke Satan's power. And so, finally, he says, there's going to be one more blow, and after that, Pharaoh will let you leave this country. In fact, he will be so eager to get rid of you that he will force you to leave. In verse 4, Moses had announced to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. At midnight tonight, I will pass through the heart of Egypt. So God's going to come in himself, and he's going to pass through Egypt and it says that in verse 5, all the firstborn sons will die in every family in Egypt, from the oldest son of Pharaoh who sits on his throne to the oldest son of his lowliest servant girl who grinds the flour. Even the firstborn of all the livestock will die. Verse 7 says, but, everybody say but. So God has, has stated a promise that he's going to do. This world will be judged. Sometimes people think God doesn't judge, and I know that that's a thing we don't like to talk a lot about. I don't spend, you know, sermon after sermon after sermon talking about God's judgment, but God is a just judge, isn't he? Imagine a parent that just let a child do whatever they want. Well, it's not too hard to imagine. Look at society today. But imagine a parent that just lets a child just rule the house, all right? So judgment must come. It's just it needs to be for order. It's not God being unjust, and it's not God being cruel. But God needs to bring judgment so that there can be correction, because ultimately he wants to bring life. It's not about death, it's about life. And he's going to judge this world, so we must not be a part of it. And he tells them, But among you, among the Israelites, it will be so peaceful that not even a dog will bark. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between the Egyptians and the Israelites. God wants to make a distinction. I said last week we should, it should break our hearts for this world. We should never be pointing our finger at the world and say, you're going to hell, I'm going to heaven. That's not the point of what I'm saying. We should be broken just as Jesus was broken and wept for those who rejected him. We should be broken for those that say, have said no to Jesus so far and weep and pray for them. We should never, ever be prideful that we have life, but we should be giving everything we've got, every ounce of our energy for the rest of our lives to save as many as are willing to follow you into eternity following Christ. And so the Lord does though make a distinction between Egypt and Israel and in the same way the Lord will make a distinction between you and this world. there are those they're called the sheep and the goats there are those that have rejected Christ or have chosen had they choose to sin and stay in that lifestyle and and it's not God God's not doing it to them. We're going to see in this story that it's really not God, it's you and so it says in Exodus chapter 12 verse 3 announced to the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day, this is chapter 12, verse 3, that on the 10th day of the month, each family must choose a lamb or a young goat for a sacrifice, one animal for each household. And it says in verse 6, Take special care of this chosen animal until the evening of the 14th day of this month, And then assemble them together, slaughter the lamb. Verse 7, take some of the blood, smear it on the top and sides of your doorframe of the houses where they eat the animal. And verse 8, that night they must roast the meat over a fire and eat it along with bitter salad greens and bread without yeast. And verse 12, on that night I will pass through the land of Egypt and he says again, I'm going to strike down the firstborns of Egypt, and I'm going to execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt. Do you see that? That's very distinct. This is what we need to see. See, Jesus in the New Testament, he makes it clear, because we're all arguing about, well, I'm good you know, this is I just this is what I think, and this is how I see Jesus, and this is how I see God, and everybody's got their opinions of what is good and what is evil, and who God is, and the Bible, Jesus just makes it clear: there's no one good but God, and He makes a second distinction. He says, "You either have one father or the other; either your father is God or your father's the devil." And the world doesn't want to hear that. You know, we don't want to hear that sometimes. Sometimes we even feel the prick by that, but we need to hear it. And know that if we're living like the world, then we're not living according to our Father God. We're living according to our Father, the devil, who lived like the devil enough to testify that you knew him once, right? A lot of people they don't need to be. I don't need to convince you that the devil's real because you were living just like him, right? And and we we can see the distinction of the Lord, right? Amen. Well, so the Bible says here that God's going to execute judgment against the gods of Egypt, and that's really what it's about. Satan was using Pharaoh as a pawn, right, in his chess game against God. It's not really Pharaoh, right? The Bible says we don't war against flesh and blood. It's not you and me that are fighting, but God uses uh, humanity uh, for his power and his glory in the same way the devil uses humanity that wants to rebel against God for his glory, for the devil's glory. And we even have Pharaoh even war on his head, right? Come on, we have it. I have proof, right? We know the Pharaoh is real because we can, we've dug them up. And what's on his head? The Pharaoh's got the serpent on his head. His symbol is literally the, it's the cobra, right, with his mouth open. It's literally the serpent. So when God said, I'm going to deal with this devil that's had you in bondage long enough. And God, Jesus came to free us from his slavery, from his bondage, and to bring us out. Moses said, I want to take them out so they can worship God. And ultimately, then God was taking them into the promised land. So God's here making a promise to Israel, and we can see this same promise to us. It is the same promise he made thousands of years ago. It's the same today. He says, verse 13, but, again, here's that but. So God's making a statement. He says, but the blood on your doorpost will serve as a sign. God said, I'm going to judge the world, but when I see the blood when I see that blood, it will serve as a sign, marking the houses where you are staying. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. It says the plague, the plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. And It says in verse 23, For the Lord will pass through the land to strike down the Egyptians, but when he sees the blood on top of the sides of the doorframe, the Lord will pass over your home. He will not permit his death angel to enter your house and strike you down. The Bible is amazing because, as I just stated a few moments ago, it is a history book. That is one part of it. Everybody, right, we can't deny it. And, you know, science tries to deny it. Uh, even people throughout history tried to, de- to deny it. And then we dug up, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and we found Isaiah, so perfectly preserved that it it was shocking. Of course, there's always going to be the skeptic. Remember, Jesus stood there in the flesh and blood in front of them, and he still put him on a cross. So there's always going to be the skeptic, but they found that, oh, well, you know, the Bible has changed, it's been rewritten, it's been retranslated so many times that we can't trust it. And then we find a 2,000-year-old text in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and Isaiah was so perfect that it was a sign that the Bible, in fact, has been preserved. So it is a history book. It is also a prophetic book. It prophesied about things in the Old Testament that were fulfilled in the New Testament in Christ. But it also prophesied about the life that you would live in 2024. And that's what's amazing about this book, is that it can be all of those things at once. And so I want to say just a few points today. I'm going to make some points and just try to track with me. Am I going too fast? I knew I needed to say, Don's laughing because I'm going fast. But I'm going fast because I, I had a lot to say. Are we okay so far? All right, well, point number one that I want to make from this, is that God has a plan. Just say it out loud with me. God has a plan. See, Pharaoh held God's people captive, and God had a plan to free them. That's the story on the surface. But the deeper truth is that Pharaoh was acting, as I just said, not by his own power, but by Satan's power. So we see that Satan has sought to trap humanity and Even here now in 2024, he's trying to keep the world bound in his system. As long as he can, he wants to keep them bound, and he's stubborn about it because he hates God. Now we're talking about Satan, not 5,000-year-old Pharaoh, 4,000-year-old Pharaoh. talking about Satan, but God had a plan to free us, amen. God had a plan to free us, and uh, point number two is it was the blood. The plan to free you was always the blood. Now, if you go back in our Bible history, go back a little bit further, right? What is the first thing that they do as an offering to God is they come and they bring their animal sacrifices. Even before the system of the law was, was written, right? The first thing, we got Cain and Abel, right, Jeannie? We were just talking about this. We got Cain and Abel, and they bring some offerings to the Lord. And what do they bring, right? They bring the animal. They bring the blood. It's always been about the blood. Now, Adam and Eve were created in perfection. God made them perfect. God placed them in an environment. You know, I, I heard a Christian scientist. This is amazing. You know, the Bible talks about how there used to be this firmament, right? Who knows that, right? Right in Genesis. Right at the very beginning of Genesis, it talks about actually that the earth, it didn't rain because we had water above and below, And we created, what basically what we do as um, gardeners today is it's called a greenhouse. That's what a greenhouse is. It doesn't rain inside. It's a circulation of moisture. There's a mist in the air, keeps things green. They still get the sunlight that comes through and you get these amazing um, plants. And so a Christian scientist said, I'm gonna try to create an environment as close to what I think I can. Uh, And so in Texas, he creates this big dome and he grows a tomato plant that, that it grew 30,000 tomatoes on one plant, on one single plant. So Adam and Eve were made in perfection. God didn't curse Adam and Eve. They weren't cursed. God made a perfect environment, right? They broke his covenant, right, by coming out, right? They come, came out from under his covering by, by sinning. So the very first thing that God does, what's he do? it says that he took animal skins and he put them on Adam and Eve. Where did God get animal skins from? You think that God just, you know, there was some naked animals walking around? Like, sorry, I lost my skin recently. God took these animals and slaughtered them. I mean, by implication, where would God get animal skins from? That doesn't say he slaughtered them, but obviously some animals were missing and now Adam and Eve were clothed. And so we see that the blood... Right off the bat, the very first thing that God does is he, he protects Adam and Eve under the skin, the covering. God covers them. It wasn't the skin, but the blood. They're, they lost their life to cover Adam and Eve. Do you see this picture? And so it's always been the blood. This is not a new thing. It wasn't new when, when they painted the blood on their doorpost. And so it wasn't new when Christ gave his own blood. It's always been about the blood. Jesus celebrated the Feast of Passover with his disciples and what we call the Last Supper. And there he's sitting in the Last Supper. Now, we just picture it as breaking the bread and drinking the wine, right? But you don't realize what it's actually doing was eating the meal as a celebration of this very event in Exodus. And so what he did, you know, they didn't have the blood anymore. The celebration was no longer painting the blood on the doorpost. They didn't need to do that. That was a specific moment. But the memory was that they would have the wine at their dinner. And there was actually, it looks like from my research, four different glasses of wine in this event. And they all represented different things. And so Jesus takes the wine... And he says something very specific in reference not just to a cup of wine being red like blood. See, sometimes we just think, oh, well, it symbolizes blood, it's wine, it looks like blood, we drink, we take communion, and there's his blood. No, he said, this, this thing I'm holding, which is what? This is the wine that represents the blood when God was going to judge the earth, he looked at you and he saw my blood. You know, God is outside of time, isn't He? Right? This is just a strange thought. You ready? Just picture yourself in your own head, wherever you are in your life right now. Okay? We all have an image of ourselves. As we get older, I remember my grandfather telling me, doesn't matter how old you get, you always picture yourself the same and you think the same. Is that true? I don't know. I'm not quite there yet, but I can tell you where I'm at now. It is hard to picture yourself as older, you just always think of yourself as younger. But was I any more me the moment I took my first breath than I am now? And am am I any more me now than I was then? I was always me. The only difference is time. And so if I remove time, Jesus actually, when he's sitting there in the upper room with his disciples, and they're having this communion meal, this last supper, Outside of time, when Jesus said, this is my blood, he's not just saying this symbol, this glass. He's saying that this thing that represents, that was always my blood. It was my blood back then, too. And it will be my blood that you'll need in the future. That's why Jesus said, take this in remembrance. How can you, we're about to do it in a little while, I think. Yes. Yeah, we're going to pass them out soon. And when we take communion today, We're going to take communion later on, if you are willing. But when we do, we're going to drink a cup of juice, and we're going to break a wafer that has zero calories in it. I'm being silly, but the point is that it's because it's not the juice and it's not the wafer, is it? What are we doing? Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me something supernatural happens just by us. We go through a physical act, but we're actually remembering something done 2,000 years ago. And so in the same way, Jesus is sitting there 2,000 years in the future from this Passover event and saying, that was me. And so the disciples, they're not quite getting it. They're about to get it, and I can prove it to you because Peter says, in order to have blood, we need a lamb, right? Jesus said, this is my blood. Well, Peter says, in 1 Peter Chapter 1, verse 18, For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. Verse 19, It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. Wow. So Peter was sitting there in that upper room with Jesus. So when Jesus said, this is my blood, Peter writes about it after Jesus' death and resurrection and says, I get it. I didn't quite get it then because I was about to deny Christ three times, and I, and I went through some things, and I dealt with some things. But just as Jesus prophesied, I encouraged myself. I've encouraged the other disciples, and now I'm back on the race again. I'm running the race for the Lord, and he writes the book of Peter down and he says, that was the Lamb of God. What's the Lamb of God? This is a very specific reference to the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. It was the Lamb, which then became, this became the picture as, they move, as we move into the Old Testament outside of Egypt and we go into the wilderness and we go into the Promised Land. This will become part of their religious practices that they go through. But the very first time, that the sinless, spotless Lamb of God was referenced, was right here in Exodus. It was a moment where death came looking for you, but God looked at blood that was not yours. He looked through somebody else's blood and saw your home and protected you. Isn't that amazing? The next point I'd like to make is entering in. We have to make a choice, though. The Bible says in Psalm 91... Verse 1, he who dwells in the secret place, this is in the New King James, of the Most High, shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. It says in verse 4, he shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. The Bible says here in Psalm 91 that there's a covering, there's a an, there's an coming and unending, uh, coming under him. In the NLT, it says in verse 9, that if you will make the Lord your refuge, if you'll make the Lord your home, if you'll come into his home, come under his, his covering, if you make the Most High your shelter, no evil will conquer you. No plague will come near your home. Another direct reference in Psalm 91 to what happened here in Exodus and also is a promise through Christ, because we come under his covering, that the Lord says, I will rescue those who love me, I will protect those who trust in my name. And when they call on me, verse 15, I will answer, and I will be with them in trouble, and I will rescue and honor them. Jesus is the door. When they came inside, the Bible says here in Exodus 11 that there was a room that was called their own. Everybody say, it's my house. It became a temple worship system, in time, it would become a temple. It would become a system of worship, right? They would go to the priest. They would bring their offering and, and, and so on. We don't have time to get into the whole teaching of, what, of, of the temple and how it was established, how it was a tabernacle, became a temple, became Christ. But I'll just say today that uh, the very first temple was your home. Before it was ever a building, it was, it was you. It's right back on us again, isn't it, here now in 2024, it's all about in our hearts. It's about us and our family. He said, Go inside, stay inside. Well, it says in John chapter 10, verse 7 Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door. And he says in verse 9, I am the door. And if anyone ent- enters by me, he will be saved. It says in John chapter 14, verse 3, that when everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. And verse 4, and you know the way to where I'm going. Now Thomas, verse 5, says, we don't know the way, Lord. We have no idea where you're going, so how can we know the way? In John chapter four, uh, 14, verse 6, it says, Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. In verse 9, Jesus replied, Have I been with you all this time, Philip? And yet you still don't know who I am. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is the door. And in fact, it says in Revelation 3, verse 20, it says, Look, I stand at the door of your own heart. I'm standing at your door. The Bible talks about this going in. I'm going to judge the earth. I'm going to judge Egypt. But if you will come inside, if you will come under the protection, if you will come under the covering, you will see death pass over. The plague will pass over you. And the Bible says here in Revelation 3, verse 20, right? Jesus refers to himself as the door, as we just read in John 10. But in Revelation 3, it says, I stand at your door. And so we see this communion. There's something greater. It wasn't just that they went into a room, but everything in that room was God's presence. It wasn't just that they went into a house and God said, wow, that house has animal blood and, and that's enough. It was that when they went inside, God's very presence went in there with them. And so you see that actually we have to come in through Christ, but also Christ wants to come into your life through your heart. It says in Revelation 3.20, Look, I stand at the door of your heart and I'm knocking. The Lord's knocking on many hearts, isn't he? You know, and I believe that this applies to saved and unsaved, because to the unsaved, it's an open to your heart for the first time, to those that have been saved, to those that know him. There are, there are doors inside of us that we've blockaded from God, aren't there? Let's just be brutally honest with God. Aren't there doors that we have said, God, you, we don't say it in those words, but we, this is my area. God can have every other area, but this area is mine. And we might not say that, but we, do, we, we say it without saying it by the life we live or the choices we make, that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you into these things, but this is my thing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave this bitterness in here. I'm going to leave this hurt in here, or I'm going to leave this sin in here. I love you, God, but I still need this sin. But he says, if you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. Here's us over in Revelation making a connection to the to the last supper, making a connection back to Exodus chapter 11. You see this picture that God is giving us. It's always been the same message to us, which is I want to know you. And if you're willing, I will I I will be your friend. Don't you want to know me? And so this this same exact Uh, message is here today for you in 2024. And, And my next point is that we must stay inside. Everybody say stay inside. This is a very big point. I think this is probably the greatest message that the church needs to hear. This is not the message for the world. This is the message for the church. The world needs to come in, but the church needs to stay in. There's been so much wandering back and forth, so much of the church. In fact, so much of the world has judged the church. So much of the world doesn't understand the church because the church has wandered in and out, haven't we? Haven't we? And I say we because, you know, all the great prophets of the Bible, right? Isaiah, Elijah, right? All of them. You go through. They always... Uh, even Daniel. He, talks, he says, I. He says, me. He says, we. He puts the sin of his fellow believers on himself. We should do the same thing. Our body, our church, they've been a little bit of Christ in a little bit of world, right? We say we love God and then we do horrible things to people and it makes the world look at Christians and say, I don't understand. I don't understand this Jesus. I don't understand Christians. And really it's because we haven't stayed inside as the church. We've come in, and then we go out. We come in, and we go out. But the Bible says that you must stay inside. He told them, don't leave your house until I come get you in the morning. Don't leave until I come get you. That was the promise. In fact, there's actually another story in the book of Joshua. In chapter 2, you'll find this story. And we have a character named Rahab. Everybody say Rahab. What's amazing is Rahab is not an Israelite. She's actually a prostitute in a city called Jericho in the land of Canaan, which would become Israel. And this prostitute um, sees God's servants. Joshua sends out some, some spies into Jericho because they're about to go in, finally, to possess the land that would become Israel. And before they go in they go into Jericho first to investigate and to find out a plan of attack and they they come back they go, go back to Joshua they gather their army God gives them a plan and they go in and they conquer Jericho but in the process of them going in and spying out the land they meet this prostitute who hides them and she hides them in her, her the thatch of her roof so that the guards can pass by her house they they had heard there's some people coming in from that 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 those people that are outside our walls some spies have come in and she protected them so they make a deal they make a deal with her they said verse 18 of Joshua chapter 2 when we come into the land leave a scarlet rope you may know it as the scarlet thread right who knows the term scarlet thread you know there's one that goes i've been I've been weaving one today, just so you know. That's what a scarlet thread is. It's when we start connecting the blood. We start connecting the dots through the whole Bible. It's all one big story. It's always been one big story, isn't it? It's not broken up. It's not Old Testament, New Testament. It's not this book and that book. It's all God. It's always been God. It's all the same story. It always has been. And so we have this scarlet rope hanging from the window through which you let us down, and all your family members, your father, mother, brothers, and all your relatives. Some people have misinterpreted the Scripture, that as long as you're saved, your household's saved. That's not what it says, does it? Right? Some people in in the New Testament, right? You and your whole household. We just read this the other day in Acts. Well, what is it? It wasn't just that his whole household stayed home and they were saved, right? The, The prison guard with Peter? The whole household heard the message, believed the message, repents because of their sins, and gets baptized together. And so this picture of your father, your mother, your brothers, your relatives, you are not saved because your parents were saved. You are not a Christian because you were taken to church as a kid. That's not what our Bible says. My Bible says if you you will stay inside, and whoever wants to stay with you is welcome. Listen, Jesus has put out the offer. Whoever is willing to come into the houses of these Israelites, whoever is willing to come into the house of Rahab, whoever whoever is willing to come through me the door, Jesus said, whoever is willing to come inside, if you will stay inside, when I judge this earth, I will look over your sins through my own blood. And that's what it says. And so it says in verse 19, if they go out into the street and are killed... It will not be our fault. It's not God's fault that people go to hell. I don't think God sends anyone to hell. I don't see a scripture that says that God sends anyone to hell. What I do see is that we reject God and make our own decision to reject him, and we go to the place we've chosen. You may not like that message, but that's the truth. Every single one of us was born under the curse, unfortunately, from Adam and Eve, and God gave us the picture right from the beginning. It's gonna, the blood will protect you. But we were called to break that curse through believing in Christ, ultimately. It was through the, the animal sacrifice. Jesus becomes that sacrifice once and for all. But we must choose to believe. And our Bible just says, not just choose to believe, but to stay. In fact, here's a New Testament scripture to prove it to you. Col- Colossians chapter 1, verse 23 says, let's just read this out loud. I put it on yourself. I must continue to believe. Our Bible says that we must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. In fact, then it says it says don't drift away. If the Bible tells me to stand firmly, to continue, not to drift away, what does that mean the potential is for me to do? To drift away to not believe any longer, to not stand it any longer. If the Bible's telling me it's something I'm going to have to work at, I'm going to have to stay in this house. I can't just say, well, I believed him once. I put the blood on my doorpost to my heart once. I I did that ritual once. I did that religious act once. No, he said, put the blood and then stay inside. You see this picture. So that means that Jesus only paid for your life with his blood once. It's true. We don't keep painting the blood. But then I have to stay in my belief and repentance under his blood. Amen. Do we get this? My last point that I'm going to make is this. It's called haste. Everybody say haste. Expedience. You guys know what these words mean. I'm using older words than we use today. Most of us know these words, but we don't use these words often anymore. And I'm using them on purpose. Get our attention and it's this Jesus is coming soon. Jesus is the bridegroom coming in at midnight. There's so many symbols and metaphors and crisscrosses throughout the Bible. Isn't it amazing how it all points to the Lord's faithfulness towards us, ultimately pointing towards Christ? You know what it says here in Exodus chapter 12, verse 11? Let's go back to the Exodus story. And it says this He says, These are your instructions for eating this meal. He said, Be fully dressed, wear your sandals, carry your walking stick in your hand, eat the meal with urgency, for this is the Lord's Passover. In verse 31 of Exodus chapter 12, it says, Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron during the night, Get out. In verse 33, the Egyptians urged the people of Israel to get out of the land as quickly. As possible. Do you know this is a picture that then Jesus, I don't have time because I, that clock ticks faster than my mouth, but the, the Jesus gives us so many, I'll just give you one, but he gives us so many um, pictures of, of what G- God said here in Exodus 11. It says in Matthew 24, verse 42, it said, so you too so you too. So look it. He's talking to us. Say, so me too. So me too. I must keep watch. The ESV says, stay awake. Do you know this was not just a picture of the blood of Jesus, but it was a picture of the entire event of what Jesus, who he is, what he would do, the communion meal, and finally, to bring us into our promised land. The promised land is not a place, is it? It's not a land. The Jews, they lost the land in the physical form for almost 2,000 years. We've gained it back now in the last 60 to 70 years, right? But the land itself was gone for a long time. It's not the land. Yes, that's, God has blessed that land, and that place is blessed by him. We can see that. But the Bible makes it clear that the promised land is God himself. It's eternity. That's the true promised land. So the picture of God freeing us from slavery, breaking the bonds of the world's power over us, taking us out in the night from the grip of the enemy and bringing us into the promise is actually a picture of Jesus breaking Satan's power over your life by his own blood on the cross, then having a communion meal with him inside the house and staying there until he comes and gets you and brings you into the promise, eternity. What an amazing picture. Isn't the Bible amazing? You know, when I was young, we talked about signs of the times all the time, talked about signs of revelation all the time, all the time, right? Dawn smirking because that's just what it was. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. You never know it when he's coming back. And what it did is it actually encouraged us to be ready. There's actually a healthy readiness in that. In fact, Paul and Peter, they talked like Jesus was coming tomorrow. And that was 2,000 years ago. Listen, if they talked like that 2,000 years ago, I think we're closer today than we were then. Who believes me? Amen. But here's what's actually happened in my life. As I've gotten older, I've gotten away from just focusing on Christ coming back. I'm not saying that I don't believe it, and I do believe it's closer than it was yesterday. It's closer now. That's just math. It's closer today than it was 20 years ago. But actually what's happened is that I've gotten older, I began to look at things another way, which is that something that Paul said, he said, whether I meet him in the air or he takes my life, I don't know if I'm going to die first or Jesus is going to come back first. I don't know what's going to happen first. But I do know this, I'm going to die. There's one promise that I can make to every one of you. And it's, it's a little morbid, but it is the truth. It's the only thing I can promise you in this life, is that you won't have it any longer at some point. Every single one of us will die. Every single one of us will breathe our last breath. And the only assurance that I have is whether Christ comes back and gets me in, at midnight, right, whether he's coming back in my lifetime or I die. Generations have come and gone, believing that he's coming back. But guess what? Their time still tick to an end. And so I promise you today, today is the time, we need to know him now, we need to seek him now, if you could just open that for me, and we're going to take communion together, and the Bible just tells us, I know it's these little, little tiny wrappers, you know, the Bible tells us that this little symbol here is so powerful Because even though this is just a cracker, it's to represent the bread that Jesus had in the upper room, right? Jesus said it's not just bread, is it? It's not just a cracker. Jesus said that when you break this, when this is broken, it is my body broken for you. And I felt compelled, especially this is our first time having communion of 2024. The Bible says don't take communion in an unworthy manner. All that means is deal with God. That it's not just a religious exercise, but deal with God. Remember his body, remember his blood, that it was broken for us. And so we're going to take the bread together. And I thank you, Lord, for your body broken for me. That you put yourself on that cross. You were that sinless, spotless lamb for my life. And I thank you, Lord, that all my sin, Lord, you looked past it. You said, I, God said, all I see is the blood of Jesus on your doorpost, and I'm looking past all your mistakes, all your failures. Every wrong turn you made, I'm looking past it because of that body that was broken for me and the blood in the same way. We're just going to take the blood, we take the juice. Here, Jesus said, the wine is not just a cup of wine, but this is a symbol of the Lamb the lamb's blood, and it's my blood. So I just thank you, Lord, that this is your blood that that cleanses me of my sin. And I thank you, Jesus, that you are with us in this room. I thank you, Lord, that as we just close this service, that, God, you're so faithful to us. I pray, Lord, that whatever you're speaking into all of our hearts, I just pray, Lord, we just would listen, we'd be humble and listen. It's so simple. I thank you, Jesus, that you're standing at the door of our hearts and you're knocking, some for the first time, some again, and some into areas that have been closed off to him. I thank you, Jesus, that you are so real. You're close. You have not abandoned us, and you're our friend. And I thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy that has brought us here today. And I thank you, Lord, that We only have breath in our lungs because you've granted it to us. So we give you glory and honor and praise. Amen. Bless Bless you.